Let me invite you to read along with me our passage this morning from 1 John 2, verses 7 to 11. 1 John 2, verses 7 to 11. Hear now the word of the Lord. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Would you pray with me? Father, your word is alive, a dividing bone from marrow, penetrating at the deepest recesses of our hearts. And yet your word never inflicts damage or never exposes anything in us that you do not intend to heal and make new to restore. And so I pray with that promise lodged firmly in our mind this morning that we would come to your word and just, just be open. Allow it to search us. Allow it to expose us. Trusting that you want to do something in us and through us that gives you a lot of glory and is for our ultimate good. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in his fantastic little book, The Mark of the Christian, American theologian Francis Schaeffer, he begins by saying this. Through the centuries, men have displayed many different symbols to show that they are Christians. They have worn marks in the lapels of their coats, hung chains about their necks, even had special haircuts. Of course, there's nothing wrong with any of this if one feels it is his calling. But there's a much better sign, a mark that has not been thought up just as a matter of expediency for us on some special occasion or in some specific era. It is a universal mark that is to last through all the ages of the church till Jesus comes back. And then Schaefer asks, what is this mark? He'll go on immediately afterward to quote from John 13, 33 to 35. And I invite you to turn to John 13 now in your Bibles and read verses 33 to 35 with me. Jesus, as his ministry is coming to a close, knowing that he's about to leave, he prepares his disciples for what is to come with these words that John records. Look at John 13 with me. Little children, yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. And then listen to what Jesus says. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. 
what Jesus is talking about. The better mark of a Christian to which Schaefer refers is simply this, the love of true Christian for true Christian. John says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And throughout the Old Testament, in the Gospels and in Paul's letters and in other letters, we read, love one another, love one another, love one another. This true mark is the love shared, expressed, enjoyed between in the household of God. And all of this is very relevant for our passage today in 1 John 2, 7-11, because apparently, amongst the churches to whom John writes, this mark is missing. It's not there. And if you've been part of Jesus' church for more than a week, you know that this mark is prone to be missing among us today as well. So I want to do one very, very simple thing today, and it's this. I want to convince you, by the Scriptures, with the help of the Holy Spirit, I want to convince you that loving your brother and sister in Christ, after loving God Himself, is the most important command that Jesus ever gave us, is the most important thing you can do with your life. And to help us see that, to to make my argument, I want us to, to see three things. First, the loss of love. Second, the evidence of love. And then thirdly and finally and excitingly, the power of love. And so first, look, look with me at 1 John chapter 2, verse 7. We're going to see the loss of love. Listen to what John writes. Beloved. Now, I, I just want to pause there for a second. John's going to say some hard, penetrating challenging things in our text today, but but never forget he begins the text with beloved, secure in Christ, loved by the Father, beloved. I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment, John says, is the word that you have heard. And I want to begin today by saying something obvious that should actually be quite profound. But before I say that, let's just see. John says, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment. In our immediate context, we come to learn by reading verses 9 and 10 that this old commandment is the command to love one another. The command to which Jesus gave in John 13. And we're told it is not only not new, but old. How? Well, John tells us. The old commandment is the word that you have heard or already heard. In other words, here's what John is saying. This is so important and so simple, but it will change your life. When John brought the gospel to these churches, this foundational message, he not only said, hey, because Jesus died on the cross for your sins, you can be forgiven. He said that. And he not only said, so now you ought to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He said that as well. But he also included in this foundational gospel message, yes, Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Yes, love God, but also love one another. John puts this message at the foundation. 
It is not the option of an advanced Christian. It is not a secondary or tertiary doctrine. John says, foundationally, you ought to love one another. And here's why this is so profound today. There is no true believing into Jesus that does not result in sacrificially loving those in Jesus. Individualists, listen once more. Isolationists, listen once more. Reductionists, those who would minimize their faith to a quiet time or voting one way or the other, listen once more. There is no true believing into Jesus that does not result in sacrificially loving those in Jesus. That does not result in you loving the church of Jesus. And John wants to remind his readers and us of this old commandment to love one another amongst these straying members of this community to which he writes because there has evidently been a loss of love. Now what does that mean? Love is this ambiguous, funny word in our culture. I got into an Evo this past week. For those of you who have multiple cars and you don't know what that is, uh, it's, it's a car share program. I got into an Evo this past week and if you, you know, use Evo, you know the radio is usually on. And so you have the joy of listening to the music of the person uh, previous to you, which is usually terrible. Usually terrible. And, and the radio turned on, and immediately it turned on to this, um, this radio show. They were talking about celebrity news. And I'll confess here, I did not turn it off right away. I was a little bit curious. It had been a while since I dipped into the celebrity news pool, and so I, I let myself listen. And they were announcing on this show uh, a divorce between two celebrities. And I, I don't remember the details, and, and I'm not lying, I, I don't. But the language they used, I I do remember. Uh, The host, they read a statement from the couple that sounded something like this. While we will no longer be together, we still have a lot of love for each other. While we'll no longer be together and our lives go in different ways, we still have a lot of love for each other. And, And I thought in that moment, this is such a perfect picture, such a clear window into how we view love as a culture. See, love is, in our day and age, not entirely secure. We can fall into it and just as easily fall out of it. Love is largely emotive. It's butterflies, right? It's here. We can't describe it. It's this undefined thing that does not necessarily have any relationship to our actions. And so we can say, I love that person, and that is just true on its own, by itself. I don't have to do anything for them or serve them in any way. We can just say, oh, I love them. I said it. And all this makes it possible to say in our day and age, I love you. But because I don't feel a certain way towards you anymore, I want half our stuff. I don't think I have to tell you that that's not love. If you've read the Bible for a month, which I hopefully you have by now as you follow along in our Bible reading plan, that's not love. That's not how the Bible, it's not even how the ancients described love or expressed love. It's certainly not how Christians are to love one another. 
What did Jesus say in John 13? A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. And Jesus doesn't just end it there. He fills in the blanks for us. What does this love look like? Well, Jesus tells us in verse 34, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Jesus and his sacrificial laying down of his life for his bride, the church, is to now be the paradigm of love in which we live, by which we love one another. In his life, Jesus, though God, loved like a servant. In his death, Jesus, though God, loved in dying in our place. This is how the bridegroom, Jesus, loves the bride, the church. It's to be our paradigm of love as well. And let me suggest to you something. I don't usually give homework on Sunday mornings. We, we, we don't need that in our life right now, to be, to be clear. But, but let me give you some homework anyways. Go to 1 Corinthians 13 this afternoon and let me just ask you to do something. Can you take that opening section on love and just reclaim it for the church and for our relationships with each other and, and not just you know, isolate it towards marriage or a wedding ceremony? Paul is talking about how we love one another as the church patiently, generously, joyously. It is this love that Jesus talks about, that the New Testament writers pick up on, that the Old Testament pointed towards, it is this love that has been lost. And it's been lost in the churches to which John wrote. And let's be honest, it is often missing from our church as well. And from me. And from you. And I worry that for some of us, this season has increased increased our view of our own problems and difficulties, which are very much real. But the season has increased our view of our own problems and difficulties at the expense of shrinking our love for Jesus' church. Our love for the other 46 tiles on this screen and on this call. What would it be like to see that reversed? What would it be like to see that love regained, see that changed? I want us to go to point number two. So we've seen the loss of love. Now let us consider the evidence of love. We're going to skip verse 8. We'll come back to it, don't worry. Let's go to verses 9 to 11. I want to read those with you. John writes, Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. This is a passage much like the verse that he thread last week, 1 John 2, verse 4. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Let's stop there. We could summarize what John is saying really simply like this. You're walking in the light in fellowship with God and with one another. This will be shown, made evident in your love for other Christians, other followers of Jesus. And we should not overcomplicate this. John says, if you harbor hatred and bitterness and resentment, anger towards another Christian, you are still in darkness still in sin. And John says, look, not only that, 
But this hatred of your brother or sister will continue to blind you so that not only are you in darkness, did you notice that? But you are walking in darkness. John says not only are you in darkness, but also you will continue to walk in darkness. Let me explain to you what the difference is between the two. If any of you on this call go hiking at all, you know that when you're hiking, you're ascending a, a mountain or descending a mountain, you know that at times uh, a mist or a fog can sort of roll through that, that blinds you to, to your surroundings. You cannot tell what is happening or where things are around you. And the conventional wisdom in those moments where you cannot see like a foot in front of your face is to stay put, right? And that makes sense. If you go walking in the darkness, what are you going to do? Fall off the face of a cliff. Fall off the mountain. It is one thing to be in the mist, in the darkness, in the fog. It is quite another, altogether more dangerous thing to walk in the darkness. It's the exact same thing with sin. Every time I sin, I am faced with a choice. Do I confess it to Jesus and to others and once more walk in the light? Or do I, do I justify it? Do I rationalize my sin? Minimize my sin? And if I rationalize it and justify it, minimize it, is not the damage not only to myself but also to the broader community? Is it not all the greater because I now walk in darkness? And when I walk in darkness and when I walk in sin, do I not then create opportunities to cause you to stumble? To scandalize you is what John is saying in our text. To cause you then to fall into sin. Well, he justified it. Must be fine for me as well. And is this not also truly hatred? I want us to consider this morning not only how our sin affects ourselves, but affects the broader community to which we have been joined. When we walk in darkness, we create an opportunity to cause our brother and sister in Christ to stumble. So our pursuit of holiness is not only for our good and our benefit, but is for the benefit of the person on the tile below you or next to you or above you. I want us to think about that for a second. Your holiness, what you're doing when no one is looking, that impacts the community of Jesus. Now that's the negative side of this. That's how we do not love one another. What, is the, what are the evidence or the evidences of this love? What are we commanded to do? Now there are, are, are tons of references throughout the Bible to loving one another. We could spend a whole sermon series on how we can love one another. I want to give us two very simple ways we can love one another this morning. Two simple ways that if, if we do these two things, this will not only change the life of this church, but will transform our city, transform our neighborhood. I, I really believe that. Two simple things. The first simple thing we do, the first way we love one another, is that we say we are sorry. That's it. We love one another when we say we are sorry. When we have hurt a brother or sister publicly, we say sorry 
publicly. When we have failed to love one another, we say, sorry. And so I want to ask just very simply, this isn't a complex theological point. Is there anyone you have failed to love in this church by what you have done or by what you have left undone that you need to approach in forgiveness today? We ask for forgiveness. We say we are sorry. And here's the second thing. It also means that we are quick to forgive one another. There are some of you on this call, I know, who are not followers of Jesus. And we're so glad to have you this morning. We're so glad that you are here. But you believe that you're already a part of communities of love. Communities that accept you and celebrate you and encourage you. And you might be asking right now, what do I need Jesus for? What do I need his church for? Let me humbly suggest this. And I think you know this to be true. It is only amongst Jesus' church where we find grace. Every other community is accepting and encouraging to a point. Until you violate a rule. Until you go against a command. And then you're out. Then you're finished. You're canceled. And at that point, no amount of penance, no amount of confession can get you back in. It's over. You're out. But with Jesus and with his church, there is always hope. Even when we practice this thing called church discipline, it is not unto exile, but unto restoration to bring that person back into the fold. There is always hope with Jesus' church. The church, when it is together walking in the light, shows this love and shows this grace because the church has received this love and this grace. This is the big idea. All we are ever doing in our loving is extending what has first been extended to us. In a few weeks' time, we'll come to John 4, 1 John 4, verse 10. And later, John will write this. In this is love. Do you see this? Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This love, which we've received and were first recipients, is now the love we are to walk in with one another. And here's the really exciting part. When we love one another, and I'm not speaking hyperbolically, when we love one another as a church, it changes the world. This is point number three, the power of love. I want us to circle back to verse eight where John says something that that might have confused you. See, after saying, hey, this is an old commandment, right, that, that I'm giving to you, you've heard this before, it's part of this foundational gospel message, he then says this, at the same time, this is classic John, at the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. How can John say this commandment, which he's just said is old, 
is also new. What's he getting at? Let me suggest it's this. When the church loves one another as Jesus loved us, a renewing thing happens in the church, which leads to a renewing work in the world. In other words, every time we dust off this old commandment and apply it afresh to our context, our generation, our church, a renewing work first seen in Jesus and his disciples now takes place in us, amongst us. As we walk more and more in the light of love with one another, we, the church, become so bright that it can be said that the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. I want us to give us a quote from a scholar I was reading this week who describes it like this. The picture is that of a world in the darkness of night. But the first rays of the dawning sun have already begun to shine. More and more areas are becoming light instead of dark, and the light is getting brighter. He says there are still dark places, to be sure, completely sunk in shadow, but there are places where there is bright light. And it is here that the disciples are to be found, walking in the light and themselves shedding Why is loving your brother or sister in Christ the most important command after loving God that Jesus ever gave us? It's because this is the way the light pushes back the already disappearing darkness. This is the way the world knows we are Jesus' disciples. Our oneness expressed in love is so the world may believe that Jesus was sent by the Father to save us. Jesus will pray to the Father in John 17, 20 to 21, these words. I do not ask for these only, not just for his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. This includes us, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Listen, Christ City. Why? Why do we need this unity of love? centered on the person and work of Jesus, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Oh, Writing on this passage, Francis Schaeffer again says this, We cannot expect the world to believe that the Father sent the Son, that Jesus' claims are true, and that Christianity is true, unless the world sees some reality of the oneness of true Christians. So do you want to see this neighborhood and your neighborhood transformed? Do you want to see your neighbors and your coworkers believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you want the world to be changed to the glory of God? Well, good news, you can. We can. And it begins, as strange as this might sound, in us loving one another. See, some of you want to tackle global systemic issues of injustice and poverty, and that is good. That is right. You should do this. But if you do not love your brother or sister in your local church, you are undermining the very change you want to see happen. 
We are to love all people, to be sure. Paul writes in Galatians 6, verse 10, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, Paul says. But then he adds this, And especially to those who are of the household of faith. Do good to all people. But start, begin with, love the church of Jesus. Still, some of us have reduced love in the church to tolerating one another, putting up with one another, being pleasant with one another. We've adopted in this way the cultural definition of love. Can I challenge you this morning? This is not how Jesus has loved us. He has not loved us in a flaky, ambivalent, apathetic way. And that is not how we are to love one another. Sacrificially, brothers and sisters, commit to loving one another. This is the mark, the mark of a Christian. And hear the warning in our passage today. Love is a matter not only of speaking and of feeling, but of doing, of walking in the light. And still, there are some on this call who we've said already don't know Jesus. And let me say this. If you don't already know, if you haven't already heard, the church is not a perfect place. It's not a perfect place. We have, and quite frankly, will continue to fail in our task of loving one another as Christ loved us. But here's the good news of this community. Here's the good news of this church. It is not that we are good or perfect or special, or that I am good or perfect or special, but that we have a Savior who is good, capital G, good, who is perfect, capital P, perfect, who is special, capital S, special. That's the good news of this community. That's the gospel of this community. We are all idiots. Failures. And yet God loves us and sent his son Jesus to save us. And though we are hopelessly thick, he has poured out his love on us and continues to pour out his love on us. That's the gospel message. That God loves us. That God forgives us. That he graciously invites us each day to love him and one another more. As I look at the screen now, each tile on this call is a token of God's lavish grace. That though we were his enemies, hating him and hating one another, as Paul says, he saved us. He poured out his love on us. And it's to him that we now belong. Therefore, it is his name we bear. And it is his love amongst us that we hold up as our true mark as our true banner. Oh Lord, may we be faithful in doing so. So Father, we come. We come not having loved one another in what we have done and by what we have left undone. And we ask your forgiveness. We pray that this would be a community of love. 
Not in a country club sense, where things are nice and kind and we love each other, but in a radical, sacrificial way, where we join in fellowship with one another, and where that fellowship is a, a, broad, a loud broadcast to the watching world that you, Jesus, came to, to save us from our sins. So Lord, for the sake of our neighborhood, for the sake of our friends and family who don't know you, would we love one another? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.